Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy New Year. And, uh, you know, we're celebrating the new year by playing an interview for you that we did prior to going on break. But also, we're going to continue airing those special interviews we did with uh, pioneers, LGBT pioneers, in a partnership that we did with Open House, the LGBT senior resource organization right here in San Francisco. So enjoy. We'll be back tomorrow at the same time, 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time. Make sure you dial in. You can always reach me at michellemeow.com. All right, let's get our program started. As you know, this holiday season, we are producing a series of of interviews from LGBT pioneers and in partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization that serves our LGBTQ senior community right here in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I wanted to do this um, so that we can give exposure to the incredible work that some people have have, have done and have contributed in our community and and the fact that we should not ignore the issues that... uh, will impact our aging community. And so if you would like to make a tax-deductible donation today, you can head to openhouse-sf.org to make the donation today. Today's program is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Our guest today is Mary Midget, but uh, we will call her Midget because that is what she would like to be called. Uh, Midget, welcome to the program. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and I want to applaud you that you have your own program. That's fantastic. <laughs> you know, many years of hard work and persistence, which is probably something you uh, are aware of and, and have done all your life, um, has, has, I guess, paid off. But there, there it could be a day when somebody says, you're done, Michelle. Um, but that would be the point why we all have to work together in order to preserve our community, right? Well, you know, Michelle, at the age of 80, it's never about it's done. Mm -hmm. It's never done. Mm -hmm. You will just keep going. I will just keep going. I'm writing a column on aging, and my editor says, girl, keep it going. I tell there's no end to it. Right, right, which thank you so much for having the will to continue, because without people like you, um, you know, some of us would live in ignorance. <laughs> uh, let's let's start the show off by talking about you and talking about your childhood. I know that you uh, you grew up in New York. No, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts. Ah, Boston. And so, what was life like growing up in Boston for for midget? Uh, for midget, uh, it was fun. It was fun. Yeah, I midget is the Leo that doesn't let anything. Go past her. I mean, I had a jam time. What can I tell you? Yeah. I have no regrets. I have no regrets at all, young lady. Yeah, were you were you an active, spunky kid like you are as a senior? I was an active, spunky kid. Uh, in fact, um, I was looking at some of the questions that, that was sent to us, mm-hmm. and um, it talks about, Coming out story? Or are you going to get to that, or I should wait till you say all that? Yeah, I'll, I'll get I'll get to it. I mean, I, I'm trying to ease us and our listeners into midget. Uh, you know, it's always good. It's like a first date, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so I want to know a little bit about you know what kind of kid you were, just to give us some context as to you know leading up to when you came out, because that might make us understand a little bit more. Um, so I, I, I think that what you're alluding to is the fact that you've always been incredibly courageous. Yes, yes, I have to agree with that. Um, I had three brothers, 
And uh, they were very loving, very supportive of me. And I came out, but I really didn't know I was coming out. I met a young lady. We hugged and rubbed. But, Michelle, I didn't know what I was doing. You didn't know that you were hugging and rubbing? I mean, I knew I was hugging and rubbing, but I... <laughs> Just for it all. <laughs> okay. <laughs> quite no. But I will tell you this, girlfriend, it darn sure felt good. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so let's talk about that. Let's, uh, we're, we've got to that point of, of coming out. I mean, you know, for some of us in the queer community, we've always known that we're different, we're special, uh, and even, you know, to articulate it, some of us knew we were gay when we were a young kid. Did you know? Again, you know, Michelle, there was no word. There was no word for us to relate to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just when I said the rubber dub dub, uh, <laughs> I knew it felt good. Yeah, yeah. That's all I knew. Yeah, it felt good. And um, fortunately enough, it felt good. And down the road, interestingly enough, my aunt uh, told me that. I was a lesbian at the age of five. Mm-hmm. You know the expression, your parents always know? Yeah. Yeah, but they're afraid to tell you. I think they're afraid to tell you because they know there would be some repercussions. Right. You know, as a youngster and how would society treat you and parents are not always there to save you. Right. Right. So let's fast forward to the point in which you're living openly as a queer woman. Um, what was what was that like and what year was that? I didn't live openly because I was in the army. Oh, and, uh, it was it was really interesting. You know, we talk about the witch hunt. Witch mm-hmm. hunt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had to go through those. They were really, really bad. But I didn't let them affect me because I was a strong individual. And the sergeants, I mean, they would browbeat us lesbians, but we knew what time it was. We knew they wanted to sleep with us, but we just did not, you know, allow that to happen because we knew we could get put out. So as far as the coming out was concerned, I always knew I was a lesbian. Mm-hmm. So there was never what you call a coming out process. I became very politically active when I came here to San Francisco. Let's we're going to get there, and I definitely want to talk about the the long years of service you've given to our community. Um, but what made you want to join the army? Freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was freedom. Uh, I had three brothers. Uh, I was very overprotective which is overprotective. And I also read an um, article in Ebony Magazine, and it showed how people lived. And I'm thinking, my God, people do really live like this? I mean, it was just degrading. It was awful. So that really is what pushed me to join the Army to travel. You know, I asked this, I, I had done another interview in which an individual also had served in the uh, military during the 60s and 70s. And, and now where we're at in 2015, the military, the government has a different relationship with gay and lesbian service members. Um, but I still find that, uh, you know, some 
I guess, issues that the the military and the government face, uh, they're not always conducive to LGBT people. Uh, what are your thoughts today? And in looking back, um, are you proud of the military for, for doing what they did? Well, when you say proud, you mean allowing the don't ask, don't tell? Yeah, what? yeah. Because they haven't changed. Mm-hmm. It hasn't changed. I mean, if you come out, it's all over. Mm-hmm. They'll say to you, yeah, it's okay. But I'm sure many of them still get harassed. I'm sure they do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I mean, I know some people that are still in the service. Yeah, I still think they get harassed. I don't think nothing has changed. So let's fast forward to the, you know, to you getting to San Francisco. Um, you left the Army. And, and I mean, any any reason why you chose San Francisco? Oh, I always wanted to come to San Francisco. Oh God, since I was in the army. Uh huh. Yeah, I was told that this was the place to rock and roll. <laughs> and you got rocking and rolling. I mean, I mean, act uh, to be active in the community. I mean, um, at least you know what. I guess during the time that you came in San, to San Francisco, what year was that? I came here in 1974, but I didn't get stationed here. So that was my sadness. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get stationed in San Francisco, but um, I got stationed in Fort Meade, Maryland, which was all right. It was okay. Yeah, because then I traveled a lot on the East Coast. Uh, and, um, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I wanted to bring up the fact that you came to San Francisco in the mid-70s and, and a lot was happen- happening politically here in this city. Um I guess what I wanted to ask was, what what issues did you were you passionate about that you felt that you needed to make an in, in, an immediate impact when it came to the queer community? I came here in 1974, and God, it was just wonderful. That's all I can say. It was wonderful. But my first political uh, act was I was a um, counselor at Acceptance House, and I was the only black person on the board. And interestingly enough, there was, a not, there was not a lot of black visibility. So I took it upon myself, every chance that I got was to put myself out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it started with uh, Nia which is a lesbian organization. We're going on 26 years. I was one of the co-founder of them. And uh, Bay Area, Black Lesbians and Gays, because there was no organization with black men and women. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. you know, I looked at that, and, um, God, there was a couple of others that I can't think of. And I just felt as though, because there was not a lot of, African-American visibility Mm -hmm. that I really need to be in the forefront. I really needed to do that. And uh, wonderful experience. Wonderful experience. I want to ask a question. It may sound loaded, but uh, it's an honest one. And, you know, I'm... I want to know, and I want us to talk about it openly, but how were black lesbians treated in the mid-70s in queer spaces? And not just black lesbians, but black people in general. Well, for myself, I 
For me, because I was involved in a lot of black, African-American um, organizations, I would hear uh, women say that there was a lot of issues uh, in the gay and lesbian community. Now, I know there was. I know there was. I mean, I didn't live in a community where uh, I wore blinders by no means. Mm -hmm. But I just knew we needed, we, men and women, needed to have our own space. When I lived in New York City, it was always black gay men and women together. Mm-hmm. When I came out here to San Francisco, and I don't want to sound negative, I just want to tell you the reality of it. No, and 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 I'm not. I don't mean to to. Yeah, that that's yeah, what yeah, I want to focus yeah. on. I want to be real because I feel yeah, like yeah. no one tells these stories authentically unless we do, right? Yeah, and um, the white women. I mean, it just totally blew me out of the water. They hated the men. I mean, they literally hated the men. And that was very hard for me. And I think that was part of the reason why I wanted to be with my own, because I couldn't understand why a woman would just outright hate men. Because in my opinion, what did these gay guys do to you? I mean, they had just as many problems as we had. Hmm. But that is what happened. That's what happened. And when things turned around, it's when the HIV ep- epidemic came into play. I, I, and I that's hear that. when the women got together with the men. And it still was not about the, um, the African-American men, because we were always there with the brothers. Mm-hmm. There was never no change of that. Mm-hmm. None, none whatsoever. But... Uh, Michelle, it was terrible. Mm. It was terrible. I mean, I could not understand the insanity of it all. So many of my black friends, they would say to me, Midget, why are you joining these white organizations? You know how these white people are. And what I would say to them is that I'm doing it because they need to learn. They need to learn that everybody it's okay. I said, and if we don't come forward, how are they going to know? Mm. And so I felt like it was something I needed to do. Right. And right. I did it, and I felt good about it. Midget, hold on to that thought. We want to continue this discussion, but I've got to take a quick break, so don't go sure. anywhere, okay? Yeah. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. 
Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? <laughs> Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side as a unified team of the best fertility specialists guided by the highest ethical standards Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. Uh, we're continuing our special program with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides services for LGBT seniors. And so in an effort to give exposure to the issues that LGBT seniors face, um, we are conducting a series of interviews with LGBT pioneers. And so on the phone with us is Midget. And uh, Midget came here to San Francisco in 1974 and has been in, in, very active in the queer space, especially around African-American uh, men and women's organizations. So, Midget, you know, I, 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 I was asking you about the, the uh, environment of, and treatment of, of black lesbians or black gay men in the 70s, but, um, you know, has it changed? Do you feel that uh, it's more inclusive or do you think that we are at a point in 2015, especially, especially this year in, um, you know, this big bigger discussion regarding racial inequality, do you think that there's there's more attention to it so therefore um, we're at a uh, we're at a bubble in, in our own community? You know, that's a hard question for me to answer, Michelle. I mean, it's a hard question for me to answer honestly. Okay. Because I have been um, I have been out of the community, I would say for the last 10 years. And the only um, place that I go now is NIA. And NIA was started 26 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what the reason why it started is because we wanted to have a space of our own. So in having that space of our own, that is the only way I have been able to uh, stay with my sisters I'm it. not looking at the outside now of what's going on. I do belong to an organization called OLOC, Older Lesbians Organized for Change. You have to be over 60 years old. And I'm enjoying that. I'm enjoying yeah. that because the women are older. They're looking at their racism. And it's wonderful because way back in the day for them, they didn't know many black people, mm. gay and mm. lesbians. So we're all now trying to get all this together and figure out how we can make it work for us now in our old age. Mm. And so every time we go to a treat, we go to a retreat, or we go to a conference, 
racism is always brought to the fold. And I feel really proud of these women because right now they are willing, you know, to look at what it was like for them and what they did way back in the day. But in terms of 215, um, I'm just totally out of the loop. Or it might, I, it might feel that way, um, but your perspective matters. And so I was going to ask the other the other side of it. I mean, what about uh, aging in the San Francisco Bay Area and the treatment of seniors um, within our own community? What, what are your thoughts about that? Okay, when you uh, say that I'm, okay, I said I'm out of the loop. Let me retract that. No, I'm not out of the loop. Okay. Mm-hmm. This column I write for the Western Edition newspaper mm-hmm. and I've been writing for them for nine years. The last three columns have been on aging. And so for me, I continue to talk to every person that I can about aging. And so when I'm with particular groups what I try to, what I work at is trying to tell gays, lesbian, straight, black, Anglo, aging is nothing but a way of life. It's a number. Mm-hmm. It's only a number. I mean, I will be 80 this year. I do not see me being out of the loop per se but continuing to be there to help uh, gays and lesbians. Now, I feel really honored because Michelle had asked me to speak. That's right. Yeah, Michelle at the open house. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, she had asked me to speak for years on aging in different organizations. Right. And uh, I felt honored. I felt honored, you know, that... And sometimes, you know, we forget that we're still in the loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I, I totally get that. Yeah, because for 20 years, I spoke at San Francisco State on demystifying human sexuality. I was in New York City, and I saw this young student, and he said, Midget, you brought me out. He said, just from listening to you on that stage, feeling proud, and I was what? What, maybe 60? Hey, here's, here's, uh, I can actually um, contribute to that. You made me feel that way, even though I've been out since 19 years old. Uh, but the, this year during San Francisco Pride, you were given an award, a Freedom Award, uh, for the work that you've done throughout the years in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area. And I heard you speak at the, the press conference. Um, and it was so empowering and so uplifting because there were, you know, things that you were saying that were so positive and and also even talking about how, you know, you're still out there dating and doing things. It doesn't mean that you're, you can't do anything. I really appreciated that. Well, you know, I'm writing uh, this column on aging, and what I'm talking about is aging and being displaced. Many people have been in relationships forever, and yet the column will start off by saying, Are you gl- were you glued at the hip with this person? 
Because if you were glued at the hip with this person, when the person trans, transformed, trans, trans, then you are displaced. You are displaced. You are displaced as a gay, gay and lesbian, because maybe you were in the closet. So if you were in the closet, that means maybe you did not have a lot of gay and lesbian friends. Maybe you had all straight friends. So if you had all straight friends and you didn't talk about that you were gay and lesbian, this is something I put in my column, Michelle. We have to start looking at what is there for us as gays and lesbians. Now, I don't go to open house because... I haven't got there yet. Now, when I say I haven't got there, my life is so busy. It's so fulfilling that I don't have time to sit down and play cards or bingo and whatever seniors do. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, Michelle. Trust me, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad thing, girlfriend. I just ain't got there yet. Yeah. I haven't got there yet. And to get there, I think, is good because then you have a community. But right now, so many of us young people, let's say young folks in their 40s and in their 50s, they're not planning for their senior years. They're glued at the hip with their relationships. And that's not the reality of the world. It's not the marriage. It's not the reality of the world. And that takes me into marriage equality. I think it's great. But you know why I think it's great? I think it's great because if you've been with somebody 100 years, at least now that other person's family can't come and leave you in the streets. Mm -hmm. That's what I think. Mm -hmm. Marriage equality. I think it's so wonderful. But I'm going to say something kind of negative. Okay, It's okay. Young folks are going to get out there and do what the straight folks do. We all going to be in love. Everything is great, 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 great. Then you go on and you're going to adopt the kid, and next thing you know, same old shit. <laughs> okay, get a divorce, go to court, and fight for the kid. I mean, that's real. <laughs> Shell, that's real. Oh, wow. Midget. Because this is what me and my friends talk about. Yeah. Midget, thank you so much for your honesty and your your time. I've got time for one more question yeah. as we're winding down here. Um, what are you most proud of in terms of your accomplishments and uh, the life that you've lived thus far? I am. I feel like I have accomplished visibility in the gay and lesbian community. I'm leaving a heritage. You and, sure are. And that's what I feel. I just saying this, I feel it. Of course, it's also my ego, too, but I feel it. <laughs> Midget, thank you so much again for joining us here on the program for and uh, for being out there and for all that you've done. Uh, you're a hero to me, and I just love you. I love you, too, Michelle. Thank you. Thanks Have so much. Happy New Year. Yes, you got it. Happy New Year. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll continue right after this with another interview, so don't go away.
Eklina. I've been doing drag here in San Francisco for almost 20 years, and uh, over the past couple months, I just opened up my club, Oasis. It's been going really well. People really seem to appreciate the space. It's something people say San Francisco really needs right now, because the city has been changing a lot. I always had this attitude of, of opening a space that was kind of like for everybody, and that's just kind of the attitude and the, the, uh, the ethics of Oasis, is it's kind of a space for everybody. How does it feel to be a business owner? I don't know, you know, it's funny because I still need, I still have to kind of pinch myself to believe it's actually true, you know what I mean? Like I walk in there and, and I go up to the bar and I go, oh, can I please have a glass of water? You know, it's kind of like, I forget that it's my place. Running gay clubs, it's changed a lot. Um, I think that gay people now, they're everywhere. They don't feel like they have to maybe be in a gay bar all the time, so you have to be much more creative about how you are enticing people to come out to your club. I, I guess I'm successful because I'll just say it, I work really hard at what I do. I also like to provide a really quality experience for people. So yes, you know, people will pay to see my shows and pay to come to my club, but I always like, like to give them something that's worth it. The experience that they'll, they'll leave my shows going, okay, that was worth it, you know what I mean? This has always been my attitude. Um, just to entertain people and so it seems like that works, you know. I would say to young kids, you know, just kind of form your own identity and, uh, and you know, don't let others dictate how you should behave or think. Uh, you can always go to uh, sfoasis.com to find out about all the entertainment and nightlife that we have going on at Oasis. If you want to see drag, we've got that for you. If you want to see some queer hip-hop parties or queer dance parties, we have that for you. Spotlight on success and achievement. Brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and uh, we're continuing our special program in partnership with Open House. Open House is a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides services and resources to the LGBTQ senior community. So uh, in an effort to expose and highlight issues that impact LGBTQ seniors and during this holiday season, I wanted to make sure that we don't forget our LGBTQ pioneers. That is the reason why we've been interviewing uh, fascinating people who have contributed to our community, the LGBTQ community. But if you'd like to take it a step further and support uh, the cause, support the organization that provides the actual resources, Open House, you should head to openhouse-sf.org and make a tax-deductible donation right now. Uh, but for me, right now, I think we're going to start the uh, the next interview, and I'm very, very, very excited to have this person on our program because I think that uh, he might be the only person from the leather and kink community that uh, we've had on the program during this holiday season uh, to talk about, you know, I, I think, I, I hope he'll be open to uh, sex and leather history. So let's welcome Race Bannon to the program. Race, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Much appreciated. I'm on your website right now, Bannon.com, and reading your very lengthy and extensive bio. And I just mentioned I'm very excited to have uh, someone represent the leather kink and, uh, you know, sex liberation community. Let's start by asking you a very general question that we've asked all of our interviewees, and that is, where did you grow up and, uh, and what was it like being, you know, young little race? 
Um, I grew up in Chicago. I was born in the city, raised in the southern suburbs, and then at some point moved back into the city. Um, I was an only child, um, mostly raised by my father, who was one of the most remarkable men who ever walked the face of the earth. And um, I attribute my dad for being who I am today, quite frankly. That is wonderful. And um, so, yeah, from Chicago. All right. Awesome. Well, welcome. Um, well, so what year was it that you said you moved to San Francisco? I moved to San Francisco in 1994 from Los Angeles. I had been in L.A. for 14 years before that. So I'm sure then, you know, your work in the leather and uh, the sex and relationships uh, community stems back prior to you coming to San Francisco, right? Yeah, I, I was very active in um, what we referred to back then, <laughs> back <laughs> when the earth was cooling, as the gay rights movement in Chicago. Um, I was one of the main organizers of the Anita Bryant um, protests. And, oh. um, yeah, so... Uh, yeah, we had 5,000 people marching in Chicago um, to protest Lita Bryant. So I've uh, been very involved in um, LGBT issues from the beginning, um, Chicago, and then briefly I lived in New York City, Manhattan, for a while. And then the sexuality and the leather and the kink uh, work uh, began really in earnest when I moved to Los Angeles in 1980. Okay, so I'm going to take it, I'm going to dumb it down. Uh, we've got some new listeners here, and there have been a lot of discussions and questions around, you know, uh, the leather community and the relationship within the LGBTQI community. And for some reason, there are new, younger, I guess, queers who uh, may not have that connection. So if you will, we've got incre uh, an incredible resource in you today. Take us down the, the history line in, in terms of leather. Um, explain to us, you know, as far as being a member of the leather community, why the leather community is absolutely a, a part of the LGBTQI community. The, leather, the, the term leather community really stemmed from um, the gay men's and women's and lesbians um, leather community um, back in the day. Um, it has since sort of become expanded to actually include um, people of all genders and all orientations and a whole number of proclivities beyond what was originally thought of as leather. Um, so it, but its, it's origins certainly stem um, primarily from the dense urban um, gay male mostly culture um, and they've been an integral part of the overall LGBT community from the beginning um, in terms of uh, simply being a very specifically demarcated demographic. They were amongst the very first in terms of aggressive fundraising. Um, certainly when the HIV crisis happened, the, it was mm -hmm. the community that seemed to jump on board uh, very, very quickly. Um, and aggressively. Um, so it, it's this long history of sexual mavericks and erotic rebels that have decided to have sex their own way, but and also to erotically identify their own way. They like identifying with that bit of rebel status and um, doing things their own way, and it becomes a kind of identification as much as it is a sexuality. This is going to sound extremely ignorant, but uh, you know, is the leather kink community down in Los Angeles 
uh, especially in the 80s, you know, was it different than the Leather King community in San Francisco in the 80s? Um, not ignorant at all. A question is actually, <laughs> it's actually uh, a really good question. Um, they were somewhat similar, actually. I think West Coast leather, uh, back then we didn't really use the word kink. Mm-hmm. That is a relatively new term because it probably more accurately describes what's going on than leather does in many instances. Um, but no, they were, they were actually somewhat similar. Certainly um, the gay men's and lesbians uh, scene was very similar uh, back then to the San Francisco scene, maybe a little bit more out and open in San Francisco, simply because it is San Francisco. But uh, it had the West Coast aesthetic, the West Coast feel, um, the West Coast openness, uh, style, look, culture were all pretty similar, actually. What made you want to, um, I guess, you know, become an activist in the leather community? Was it really, you know, you mentioned fundraising, you mentioned being you know, pretty much the, uh, the first people to mobilize and, and organize to, to raise funds for the community, especially during a time of crisis. What was it? Um, for me personally, uh, I was always attracted to the men's leather scene, the leather scene generally, eventually. Um, from the time I came out, I was sneaking into men's leather bars in Chicago underage, uh, uh, at a, you know, I, it was immediately what I gravitated to. Mm-hmm. So the moment I came out in the sense that I was going to bars, I was trying to inject myself into the, the, the gay male culture of the time, I immediately was drawn to both the look and aesthetic and feel and sexuality of Leathermen, but also to the atmosphere. I, I would spend most of my young nights in, in leather bars in the beginning. So I, I, on a visceral, personal level, it always had a strong attraction for me. The other thing is that, and I'll go back to my father, who always said, be yourself and be proud mm-hmm. of who you are. Um, and I made a decision very early on that I would not be closeted in any way, and that included my leather and kink. So all my jobs in corporate life, regular life, whatever, uh, I've been very out, and part of being out like that means that you then are some someone that sometimes people turn to because you're, especially back then, we're talking late 70s, early 80s, you're living a per- pretty out life, and most people are not. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I felt it, you know, it was incumbent on me to actually do something about the acceptance of leather, the acceptance of kink, educating both our own ranks and people on the outside. Um, in ways that I felt were important and were lacking at the time. Uh, now I think we have a plethora of such education and, and information campaigns. Right. But, but back then, not so much. You know, for me, I, I obviously I, I wasn't old enough to <laughs> be a part of the leather community in the 80s and uh, wasn't aware of even my own sexuality at the time. Um, so when I when I read, you know, LGBT history that's inclusive of the leather community, um, I really I really find that those who did work in this space, who were activists uh, in the leather community, were extremely courageous because you really had to fight so many, so many different things like, you know, the government policies and social perspectives of not just gay people, but gay people who wanted to be sexually liberated, who just 
I was, you know, excuse my French, but just didn't give a crap uh, shit <laughs> about, um, you know, people thinking that uh, monogamous relationships made you a good person. Did you did you ever feel like you were like, you know, way too shocking, too weird, too different to fit in society? Um, personally, no. Um, I certainly having been an integral part of a lot of LGBT activism early on. I was fully aware that leather men and women, drag queens, witch dykes, I could, oh, there's a long list, were typically pushed to the back of the bus in terms of the main civil rights discourse. And so not only were we fighting sometimes to simply have general societal acceptance, but even within our, our own LGBT ranks, there were many times where our voices were squelched and that has thankfully changed quite a bit. But um, back then, it was very difficult to be an LGBT activist, a gay rights activist at the time, um, and be a leather man, a drag queen, a right. bush dyke, etc., because you were definitely ostracized from the main discussions because it was deemed that you know you were not an acceptable representation of who we are. Right. And I'm going to follow up to that when you're not just a member of the leather community, but you're outspoken and talking about, you know, sexual freedom and the freedom to not, like I mentioned earlier, you know, it's not really always about one partner or being ashamed that you only have sex in the traditional way or... <laughs> you know, for procreation reasons or something. What I'm trying to get at is the the fact that, uh, you know, I wanted to hear more in terms of your opinion, your feelings, your experience in being able to articulate that sexual freedom, whether it's multiple partners or a different way of having sex that society deems okay. I think one of the foundations of leather and kink and um, the alternative sex and relationship movement um, is the the main point of self-determination. That, that That's kind of the, the, whether it's our sexuality, whether it's our relationships, whatever, that is the overriding universal principle, if you will, that every human being has a right to self-determination. And the logical thinking, when you embrace that in its entirety, is that that applies to your sexuality and your relationships as well. So right from the get-go, it never felt correct to me that mm -hmm. there was a one true way for anything. I'm a big believer in diversity. If you look at nature, everything about nature is diverse, from snowflakes to flowers to whatever, and there's no reason that human beings and the sexualities and the relationships that they embrace shouldn't be just as unique. So I have never followed this sort of one true wayism for anything in regarding sexuality or relationships. I just don't think it applies. Mm -hmm. I think we have cultural norms that develop, but they're nothing more than cultural norms. That doesn't mean that, that they are the right way. They're just the cultural way things have developed. So I do think that we are reaching a time. I mean, look at the, the, the uptick in the coverage of polyamory, for example. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, it's everywhere. Um, and if you actually look at the, the, the money that's being granted research, in social, um, social science research projects, there's a lot of money being devoted to polyamory issues right now. And that's because people are starting to embrace this idea that you can go beyond the cultural norms, embrace your individuality, embrace your uniqueness, sexuality, relationship-wise. And that's kind of always been my, my mantra. I even, love it. I love it. When I was younger, it just was kind of always my mantra. 
and thank you. And thank you for that, because it's people like you, you know, paved the way, I think, for what you said um, in, in terms of this society being a little bit more open uh, to sex, sex issues, relationships, and understanding that more and not just connecting that with something like religion. Um, we're going to take a quick break right here. But when we come back, Race, I want to I talk to you about your thoughts in terms of where the community's at today. So stay with us. Sure. The Michelle Miao Show continues right after this. Don't go away. Thanks for listening to the Progressive Voices Network, streaming the best in progressive talk 24-7. Keep the progressive conversation going on by joining our community. Each week, we send out an email that covers important things taking place in the Progressive Voices Network and throughout the progressive world. Be the first to know of upcoming shows, schedule changes, exclusive programming, and more. Simply go to ProgressiveVoices.com and sign up for our mailing list. It's that easy. ProgressiveVoices.com. Thanks for listening, and thanks for joining the Progressive Voices community. Babe. I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. We are continuing our special partnership with Open House, a nonprofit organization right here in San Francisco that provides resources to LGBTQ seniors. Uh, Right here on the show, we're producing a series of interviews with fascinating LGBTQ pioneers in an effort to let you know that you should never forget uh, those who came before us, who have contributed so much to our community and who continue to do uh, a lot of that heavy lifting in our fight for equality. So our guest today is Race Bannon and um, having a great time uh, talking to Race, especially about leather history and, le- and the leather community. So Race, you know, I mentioned right before the break that I wanted to talk to you about where the leather community is at today. How has the community changed since the 70s and 80s? Quite significantly, actually. Uh, I think that a number of things have taken place. First, uh, the term leather itself has become more of an umbrella term for a whole lot of styles of sexualities and erotic identities that don't necessarily look and feel and act like leather did traditionally in the 70s and 80s. So it's become more of a a catch-all term than it is a specific identifier of you are physically wearing leather. Um, It has uh, 
broadened and uh, really moved beyond just, well, it's, it's, uh, uh, there have always been kinky people of all orientations and genders. <laughs> but That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, without a doubt. But, <laughs> but the merging of them into sort of a single unified culture is a relatively new phenomenon that really didn't start taking place until the early 90s. Um, some call it the pansexualization of the scene. Some don't like that term. Um, but it, it's sort of become a blended scene. And right now, I think what the scene is struggling with is that is this, uni- this unified group of people that share this commonality. But at the same time, each group within that has a different style, a different set of subset cultural norms a different way of being sexual and a different way of using their erotic, erotic identities in their lives. And it's become kind of this internal push and pull struggle about, well, how do we do the things together that we want to do together, but at the same time allow gay men, heterosexuals, lesbians, bisexuals, people of more fluid genders, whatever it might be, and people in different kinds of sexualities and styles have their own places, their own spaces, mm-hmm. their own identities separate and apart from the unified whole so that they can really be themselves truly while also working together with other people. It's a really, it's a difficult place to be, but that's kind of where we're at right now. Thank you for saying that because, I mean, you know, I was going to bring that up when you uh, attend Folsom Street Fair. Um, you know, it's it's interesting because it you for some people, they still think that you're going to run into just gay men, and that's really not the case today. Um I wanted to ask, you know, specifically in, in terms of the leather community and the relationship it has with the LGBTQ community. Uh, I know that you had just explained that the leather community is, has grown to include, you know, a diversity of people. Uh, but spe- specifically within the LGBTQ community, do you think that the relationship has changed, like, you know, in terms of treatment, in terms of exposure, um, and uh, even, you know, events that we work on together that that overlap? I think it's changed. I think uh, certainly in the major urban areas in um, the United States, you are seeing a higher level of acceptance of leather and kink folk. And I tend to use that term now, leather and kink, because it seems to be more inclusive, because some are using one or the other, so... I tend to use both together. Um, So I think you're seeing a higher level of acceptance. There's certainly a lot more information that people have about the leather and kink world that they did not have once upon a time. It's certainly more public. It's more out. Um, It's kind of interesting because it's at the same time when a lot of people in their day-to-day don't necessarily dress mm-hmm. the way they once might have if you you know saw Castro Street in the 70s and 80s where there's lots of people walking up and down in leather. You don't see that so much today. Mm-hmm. It tends to be more of an event-driven thing. But, um, but certainly the level of acceptance is much higher. And the greater LGBT community, when they are looking to um, recruit people for projects and events and Im- important activism movements, they do now, for the most part, reach out to the Leather and King community automatically, whereas once upon a time we were probably an afterthought. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, what about what about uh, you know post marriage equality and this whole uh, you know few of us, especially those who live in a city like San Francisco, um, 
who are working these corporate jobs now. And, uh, you know, so we probably own a few more pairs of khakis or slacks <laughs> than we used to. <laughs> but like, what are your thoughts about the, that, uh, you know, assimilation into mainstream? Um, do you feel like we're losing a little bit of our gay culture? I, I know that's probably a loaded language, but I just wanted to hear uh, your uh, thoughts. Uh, yes, I do think we are. Uh, I am also not so naive as to think that that was probably not going to happen as a result. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do think we are losing a bit of gay culture, LGBT culture that we did have before. I am still struggling with if on balance that's all a good thing. I happen to be one of the people that was a little neutral on the same-sex marriage issue. And part of that is my own personal bias, and I fully cop to it, is that I'm not a jumping up and down fan of the the institution of marriage to begin with. I Mm -hmm. think it might be an outdated paradigm that we need to rethink. Um, But with that said, I think it was an extremely important milestone in LGBT rights, and 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 I fully support it from that standpoint. But we are starting to see, even in my own leather and king culture, a normalization, um, you know, you hear the term heteronormativity a lot, um, but you do see some of that happening, and I think those of us, especially of my age, and since you're interviewing a lot of people who are older, um, do kind of pine for that era of when we, we felt a little more unique mm-hmm. than, we felt, yeah. than we feel today, yeah. and I do think we feel like something is missing, but I try not to be this overly negative you know, grandpa get off my lawn type of person, <laughs> um, but... But we do. I do think many of us feel that we were losing a little something. Yeah, you know, and and I'm not asking because I have my own personal motives or anything like that, but because I think that, especially the younger generation or those who are transplants of San Francisco and didn't necessarily or don't necessarily know, you know, the history so much that, um, like for you, for for someone who's contributed so much to the leather community, to the HIV/AIDS community, and organizing and fundraising to all these communities that. Um, are very important to to us today. I I wanted to for you to articulate, you know, how the changes have impact you and how you feel about it. Um, I mean, even even like the bars are different. Even obviously, we've been talking about it. The Castro's different. Uh, our perceptions different. Uh, even our pride celebrations. Everything is different. Yeah. And frankly, I. I I am someone who believes change is the norm. I do not believe that we can ever stand still. If you stand still, you stagnate. So I am not someone who says it should always have been the way it was. Uh, but it is true in terms of, certainly from a, a leather and, and kink perspective, our public spaces are disappearing. We don't have dedicated bars to ourselves anymore, really. Um, They simply don't exist. So we have a very hard time gathering and communing in spaces. Uh, It's much more difficult than it once was. We have to sort of consciously create events and spaces and places to go rather than to automatically have them there for us. So, yeah, uh, I miss that. I do miss, miss, I'll be honest, a hyper-gay culture and environment. I just do. Mm -hmm. Um, The the more blended kind of accepting environment is great, and absolutely it's important. Mm -hmm. But I'd be lying if I said I don't kind of, you know, miss watching guys on Castro Street cruising each other. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, right. You're you're, you're right. But but do you ever think about how that will continue to impact you as you age in in the... uh, 
you know, the dwindling of the I queer think, spaces and things like that? Yeah, I, I've thought a lot about it because I do a lot of community building stuff here in San Francisco and nationally, and it's something I think about all the time. And I think what we are now moving into is an era of what, what I call conscious community. In other words, we had a community built in the, to the LGBT community around bars and a lot of um, sort of those built-in social mechanisms. We don't have those so much today. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, I know there's the whole online hookup and meet thing, but, but I think what we really need to do is start giving some serious think time to how do we consciously create places where we commune face-to-face, -face, how do we consciously decide that we are going to get together and be this subculture that we are and not just go off into the hinterlands and blend in which I think is what many people assume we're going to do. I think like people, like-minded people, similar people, do like communing together, and there's tremendous power in that. And I would really not like to see the LGBT community as a whole just blend into the general population and disappear. I mm. think there's great value in having an actual culture that we maintain and, and, and help thrive, while at the same time, integrating into the greater culture in ways that we've never been able to do before. I think we can have both, but I think many people bemoan the loss of our spaces, our bars, and just bemoan them and don't give any thought to, well, what do we do next? I think the next, the next phase is this conscious effort to bring ourselves together and to create mechanisms, projects, spaces, whatever it might be, to make sure that we maintain that culture and that com those commonalities and, and the tribe feel, for lack of a better term, um, while at the same time enjoying the benefits that we have of being able to be more blended into general culture. We're winding down on time, but uh, I have a, a pretty important question. Do you think that there's enough leather history out there so that um, those who didn't, you know, who, who are coming new to the scene, uh, that, that they will be able to be concerned and preserve, you know, the, the reason why we have leather in the first place, in the first place? I'll keep it brief. Um, yes, there is plenty of history. There's also a lot of false history. And herein lies the dilemma. If you go to the Leather Archives and Museums, you go to our own um, um, uh, museums here, you go to the One, Arch One Archives at USC in Southern California, you, there, it, there's a plethora of leather and kink history out there. There's also a lot of um, good books. There's a lot of workshops. There's a lot of you name it, there's a lot out there. Mm -hmm. At the same time, there is this mythological thinking that there was this perfect era of leather, mostly centered in San Francisco in the urban areas, when all leather men and leather folk were following this, this code, this, this way of being, and they all looked the same, and they all acted the same, and they, they had this kind of um, very codified life. And unfortunately, that survives. It's often referred to as old guard. In, in leather culture, and 99% of it is mythology, and only a tiny bit of it is, is fact, yet it seems to thrive in our community, and it almost infects young people who they feel like they're less than because they don't live up to this mythology. So, yes, there's plenty of history, but there is some false history that I really hope we can blunt so that the younger people coming up create their own leather and king culture and don't try to just copycat something that really didn't exist. Anyway. Right. <laughs> Race, thank you so much for your time here on the program. And uh, really, I, I just thank you so much for all that you've done and continue to do. And I say the same to you. Thank you so much for this program and all that you do as well.
Happy holidays. You too. That's it. That's the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, if you'd like to make a tax-deductible donation to Open House, please visit openhouse-sf.org. Happy holidays, everyone. Thank you so much for supporting this program. Thank you.